Today's episode deals with several mature topics, including abortion and promiscuity. Listener discretion is advised. I was already doing all kinds of things. Like I had become really promiscuous, but it was different. It was like self-destruction. Like, I don't care about myself. Nobody else cares about me. I don't deserve love. So I'll just throw my life away. I'm Paul Hastings, and you're listening to Compelled, a weekly podcast with unique stories from the kingdom of God told by the people compelled to live for Him. This is episode 26 of our podcast, and believe it or not, we only have five more episodes before we wrap up season two. So whether you've been listening since the beginning of episode one, or this is your first time tuning in, thank you for listening, and we hope that you are blessed. Last week, we heard from Todd Nettleton from Voice of the Martyrs. Todd had many stories about modern-day Christians he's met who are being persecuted and martyred throughout the world, and he shared many of the unique perspectives he's gained on persecution. You can hear all of that and more during last week's interview with Todd at compelledpodcast.com. This week, our guest is Jill Robbins. Jill had an abortion at the age of 17, which was only the beginning of a self-destructive lifestyle that she pursued, including drugs and promiscuity, which in turn resulted in the decline of her mental health. Her life was falling apart until she found the only one who could put the pieces back together for her again. That story coming up right after a word from today's sponsor. I met with Jill and her husband at their home in Central Texas a few months ago, and we quickly formed a warm friendship over the next couple of hours. Jill's journey of faith has had many twists and turns over the years, but some key events in her early life played a larger role to come. My mom took us to church. My dad didn't go with us. As a kid, I didn't think much of it at all except what kind of fun we were going to have when we got there. My dad was not around a lot, and he didn't bond real well with my brother and I, so so he was kind of an absent dad, and um, he was he was kind of a ladies' man. He wasn't faithful to my mom, didn't provide very well, so my mom was a um, she was a frustrated woman that felt like she wasn't loved and didn't have security, and um, they separated multiple times when when my brother and I were really young. And then by the time we were in third and fifth grade, um, my mom left him, and she moved to the Temple Belton area where she had lots of family, siblings. And so I just grew up without that dad influence, my brother and I both, because he didn't pay child support. He actually didn't see us for about 10 years, and so he just wasn't in the picture at all. And um, I wasn't a very happy little girl. I, I felt sadness a lot. And I think that had to do with um, just the divorce of my parents. My mom is one of five siblings. She's the only uh, sibling that ever divorced. The rest of them had, you know, long, good marriages. And um, I just, I think that hung over us as our little family, you know, as the divorced family. Yeah. E- even though I, I, my family, other family members didn't make us feel that way. It was just something with, that we carried the shame of, kind of. As I got older, preteen and stuff like that, my concept of God was um, that He was disappointed in me, um, that I couldn't live up to His standards, and um, and that He was the big bad guy in the sky, hmm. you know, kind of, and. Um, so I I remember feeling a lot, you know, some people if they can if they do everything right, they feel pretty good about themselves and they can do this Christian life, but if you can't do things right, then the Christian life is just not for you because because you can never make God happy. Yeah. And I and that's where I found myself. Yeah. That's the feelings I had. I would look around at different family members cousins. I had like 30-something cousins when we moved up here. We all lived close together. And it seemed like they could do the Christian life. They they always did things right. But I just always kind of felt like an outsider. So um, as I got a little older, 15, 16, I was, um, um, I, 
I rebelled, um, but very secretive behind my mom's back. She was working full time, single parent, and um, and I was I was doing things I shouldn't do, and um, I have always thought it was that it all started with not having the love of my dad, and therefore looking for that affection just in all the wrong places. You know, a little girl that doesn't feel secure in her daddy's love, she's gonna she's gonna look for it in the flesh and it's never gonna be healthy. Jill began pursuing a lifestyle that she knew was wrong, but that at least offered the promise of love. But as she was about to find out, decisions have consequences. When I was 17, um, I found myself pregnant and um, was sick for several weeks before I figured out what was wrong. And my mom did not have a clue. She just thought I was sick. I don't have a lot of memories. There are just a few real strong memories. And, and one of the strongest memories was when I told her, Mom, I'm pregnant. She was so shocked that she nearly passed out on me. She just collapsed in my arms, basically. Wow. So it was a very difficult time for us. My mom and I both were most afraid, not of what God thought, but of what our family thought and what the church would think. I had already had it all figured out. Um, you know, Roe versus Wade had passed just a few years before that, and the church wasn't talking about abortion. There, We didn't hear anything about you know, this is a life. This is, you know, if you ever find yourself in this situation, there are other answers. Nothing like that. The church was silent on it. I was 17, so my mom had to sign for me to be able to have have an abortion. And she was so devastated and so scared of what people would think that she, she did. She signed and did something that I don't think she would have ever done if I hadn't have been there to say, yes, mom, we have no choice. Yeah. You know, and so, um, was that, was that like a lengthy discussion that you guys had or? It's hard to even remember. It was just such a stressful time. You know, I, I, I think I just said, you know, mama, we, you know, I can't, carry this baby and and we just have to get rid of it and and this is this is how we do it and you have to sign for it and and she was just kind of like putty in my hands she was so distraught um i take all the responsibility even though she was the adult because my mom was innocent in a lot of ways she had no idea the stuff that i was doing behind her back and um and I think if I had said, you know, Mom, you know, this is this is a life, this is a baby, you know, I we, we need to do what's right by this baby, I think my mom would have gone, okay, what should we do? <laughs> you know, but because I was like, no, we have to go through with this. We have to get rid of it. We have to cover this up, you know, this ugliness up. Yeah. And so um, I was like, no way am I going to carry a baby for nine months and carry that shame in front of all these people that I grew up with, you know, and that I go to church with. Yeah. And where did you go for it? It was here in Temple. There's a There was already a place in Temple. There, there was a place in Temple. The boyfriend did that part of it. Like, he came up with the money. He, you know, drove me to the clinic. And, um, and so I was just kind of numb yeah. at that point. So... How many how many weeks pregnant were you when you, when you had the abortion? I don't know. I don't know. I was just a foolish young girl, and I'm assuming I was in the first trimester. Yeah. You know, and yeah. when when women usually experience morning sickness, so I went through with it. Don't have a lot of memories about the procedure itself, um, except that I was. Um, nauseated and sick afterwards and threw up and um, nobody knew except my mom and my very best friend she was one of my cousins and we had been friends from five years on you know five years old on and and I told her and it was 
and she kept the secret all many, many, many years. Hmm. What What happened to the boyfriend after you had the abortion? Well, you know, and he was actually not even very much of a boyfriend. He, we were just uh, making out and having fun, you know, and and he offered to marry me. I, I, I think he liked me maybe more than I liked him, and I was just like, no way. <laughs> and um, and so I just never had much more to do with him. Even though the church wasn't talking about abortion, Jill knew that what she had done was absolutely wrong. She felt so unbelievably guilty, not only from the abortion, but also from the double life that she had been living. So Jill did the only thing that she thought she could do now to appease her guilt in front of God's eyes. So I told my mom I wanted to get baptized um, and wash away the filth, you know. And so um, so I did. I got baptized soon after that. Um, and, and what did that mean to you to be baptized? Like, what, what was well, going Well, to me, in the church I grew up in, there was a lot of emphasis put on being baptized, and that's when you became a Christian. Um, and and I know they taught more than that, <laughs> but I that's all I heard, you know. And and so I really just felt filthy, and I wanted to be washed clean of that. And so, um, so I went through. Um, the actions of being baptized and then was going to try really hard to be a good girl. But after that abortion, I, my self-esteem was so low and I had such self-loathing that... Um, that I didn't think I deserved anything good. And I actually plummeted after that point. Um, my mom and I started having a lot of issues. Um, I ended up moving out when I was, so that was, I was 17 when I got the abortion. I got, I um, graduated from high school the next year. Um, but I was already doing all kinds of things. Like I had become really promiscuous, still behind my mom's back, but it was, it was different. It was like self-destruction. Like I don't care about myself. Nobody else cares about me. I don't deserve love. So I'll just throw my life away. Hmm. So I became very promiscuous. Um, again, like I said, my mom was clueless. She, she knew you know, I was rebellious. We were arguing all the time and stuff. And so she knew things weren't good with me, but she had no idea really what I was doing behind her back, drinking and, you know, stuff like that. Um, so moved to Austin when I was 19, moved in with a cousin who had always been very, um, um, I'd always been very close to, she's about four years older than me. And uh, she'd always been very encouraging to me as I was growing up. And um, and so I moved in with her. She was going to a, a, a Bible church called Believer's Bible Fellowship in Austin. And I started going to church with her, and I loved the church. And um, it was just, it was really different from what I was used to, you know, growing up at home. Um, and I, and I, again, I was, I was trying to be a Christian, I love the people, I love the atmosphere, but I just couldn't do it. I didn't, couldn't walk the Christian life, you know. And so um, lived with her for a couple of years, then moved back home because my mom encouraged me to get in the nursing program here at Temple College. And I never had really known what I wanted to do, and so I was just kind of working at retail and, you know, not making much money, just, you know, hand to mouth. And so I came back to Temple. I didn't move back in with my mom, which I could have, but I had too many things to hide because of my personal choices. And so I started in nursing school 
and um, got involved with um, a young man, met him at a club, and um, kind of a whirlwind relationship. Um, we moved in together, and through part of that year of nursing school, um, by the end of nursing school, I knew it wasn't a healthy relationship, but he was very manipulative. And um, again, I felt like I didn't really deserve better. I'd already lived with him. Now I should do the right thing. <laughs> and so I ended up marrying him and uh, we moved to San Marcos and I was nursing in the hospital there and he was going to the college there. Um, the relationship got abusive. He was um, physically and, um, and emotionally, verbally abusive with me. And um, I came home to my mom a couple of times when he would really go off the deep end. Um, but I would always come back because I, I again, this, you know, weird couldn't do some things right, but other things it was like, yes, but this is what I'm supposed to do as a Christian wife. And I wasn't even a Christian yet, but I, you know, when you grow up in the church, you, you think you're a Christian. At some point during those 15 months there at the end when he was so unstable, um, he had told me that he had been unfaithful to me. And so in my mind, it was like, okay, I'm free because that's why my mom divorced my dad because he had been unfaithful to her. That was that was your out. If your spouse was unfaithful to you, you could divorce them. Mm. Um, finally, he he attacked me with a knife one day, mm. and I, I got away from him, ran out, got in my car, and drove all the way back home, sobbing all the way. Jill's life continued falling apart. She couldn't find any type of stability, and her life felt meaningless. So she delved deeper and deeper into her path of self-destruction with no end in sight. You love Christian testimonies. Otherwise, you wouldn't be listening to Compelled. But imagine if you could enjoy Compelled stories from Christians throughout the ages, including those who've already passed away. Well, that's what our friends at YWAM Publishing are doing through their Christian Heroes book series by retelling the incredible stories of Christians like George Mueller, a man of prayer who ran an orphanage for 10,000 children in England who trusted God to miraculously provide food and shelter for those orphans, sometimes on a daily basis. Or Elizabeth Elliot, whose husband was murdered by the Aka tribe in Ecuador, but chose to forgive and move in with the tribe to share the gospel with them. Or Brother Andrew, who during the height of the Cold War smuggled Bibles to Christians behind the Iron Curtain, all under the noses of communist border guards who could have imprisoned him for life or worse. These are the types of stories that YWAM Publishing is printing, and their books are written for kids ages 10 and above, but frankly, adults love them too. They've published 50 of these biographies so far, and we just partnered with YWAM Publishing to bring you five of my favorite stories. These are the Christians that have inspired my faith and millions of others for decades, which include the three testimonies I just mentioned, as well as Corey Tin Boom and Amy Carmichael. We're calling it the Compelled Christian Heroes Bundle, and I actually worked with YWAM to select these five specific stories, and they agreed to drop the price in half just for Compelled listeners. So it's $30 and includes free U.S. shipping. To buy this bundle for yourself or to give to a friend, visit compelledpodcast.com slash YWAM. That's the letters Y-W-A-M, compelledpodcast.com slash YWAM. And trust me, if you love listening to stories on Compelled, you're going to love reading these stories too. If you like to stay up to date with current events, then you'll especially appreciate another podcast I enjoy called The World and Everything in It. It's a daily news program, about 30 minutes long, delivered every weekday morning by Christian journalists from around the world. And they aren't just rehashing the current headlines. They're actually doing investigative, boots-on-the-ground journalism while providing biblical cultural analysis. I started listening to their show about five years ago when we first launched Compelled. 
And since then, they've become one of my go-to sources for understanding current events from a biblical perspective. But they pull no punches. In fact, they tell the facts just as they are, even when it requires sharing uncomfortable truths. Maybe that's why they're one of Apple Podcasts' top 100 news programs. Join me and thousands of other Christians from around the world who listen to the world and everything in it. Just search for The World and Everything in It in your podcast app or visit WNG.org. Started work at Scott and White, and um, those couple of years from the time that my divorce happened, I, you know, I was doing some cocaine and I was smoking some pot and I was drinking and I was beginning to have some mental, uh, I don't even know how to say it, just um, where I was scared to get out of bed and go to work some days. I, I hated pot because it always made me feel real paranoid. But every time I would go out with a bunch of friends and they would pass a joint around, it was like I felt compelled to do what everybody else was doing. Mm. And so I would smoke pot and then I would feel paranoid and hate it. Um, but there was some mental things beginning to happen with me. Like I was just afraid. I was unsure of myself. I felt like I was kind of losing my mind. Um, and I really just think it was Satan's influence on me. I was just allowing a lot of things into my life. And so Satan was messing with my mind. Hmm. And, um, and I would I would stay in bed and be afraid to go out and just wondering what is going on with me. You know, am I gonna am I, am I going crazy? Um, I remember distinctly calling my boss there at Scott and White one morning and just saying, "I I'm too scared to get out of bed and come to work." She was very um, understanding. She knew I was going through a lot of emotional stuff, and um, in the light of day, I kind of acted like a Christian or said that I was one or something like that. <laughs> and um, as I flirted with, you know, every man around, um, very promiscuous, just in and out of relationships, having relationships with people that I wasn't even dating. Um, at one point, having a relationship with a man that I worked with, a, a nurse who was married, um, there was just it was, it was like there was nothing I wouldn't do. I think it was just um, a, a form of self-destruction. I just didn't feel like I deserved anything good. Yeah. So, and 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 without the Holy Spirit, our you know your flesh just takes you to really ugly places. Yeah. So. Yeah. And yet there were times when I would listen to Christian music and weep and sob and and want to be good. But then I would choose not to be good in my, in my choices. Jill hated her life and loathed who she had become. But no matter how hard she tried or how badly she wanted, she just couldn't seem to change her life. But then one day, Jill received an unexpected invitation to a Christian conference. This couple kind of came alongside me, and they were Christians, and um, I'm sure they were trying to reach out to me and my brokenness and stuff, and they were going to go to a seminar in Austin, Texas, and they invited me to go with them. I, I remember thinking, well, I'm supposed to be a Christian, so I think I'll just go with them. This will be fun, you know, whatever. So we drove back and forth for a week together. You know, we'd work during the day drive down to Austin for the conference and back, you know, and work the next day and drive back down again. I really don't remember much of anything I heard that week except God's authority over us. But something happened that week. And at some point during that week, towards the end of the week, I went outside of the Palmer Auditorium to take a smoke break. And I was sitting on the curb and I... I I guess I was just thinking of all the things I'd been hearing. And um, to me, this is just God's sovereignty and that God, and this, this is, this is what makes me know that God chooses us and we don't choose him. I don't know exactly how all that works, 
But I just know that I found myself in a place where the Word of God was washing over me, and God spoke to me, not audibly, in my heart and in my mind, and said, Sorry. What happened next was something that only God could have done. Jill had been surrounded by Christianity her entire life and had undoubtedly heard the gospel many times. But hearing the authority of God emphasized over and over again for a week at this conference, as well as how God protected those that were His, made a deep impact on her. Her heart was now softened as she knew of her desperate need for a savior. And it was at this moment, this very moment on a curb that God spoke to Jill in her heart with a message she never expected to hear. He said, you're gonna be okay in your mind. And I had never had any experience like that before. And I knew instantly that I wasn't going to have mental problems anymore. I just was completely assured that I was God's child and that he was going to take care of me. And um, at that point, my life did a 180. Um, I just began to... um, think differently about everything. Um, I was I was seeing a, a guy at that time who had was asking to marry me. Um, I didn't really want to get married because I was a very f- afraid of another bad marriage. Um, he was into Scientology and so immediately I knew we had nothing in common because now now I know I am a child of God and um, and so it was just a month or two that later that I broke up with him and um, and just I, I just it, it's like I, mem- I remember things just falling a- away from me like I had no interest in those things anymore no interest in drinking no interest in cocaine or you know any of that stuff that I'd been doing and um, and I had a joy that I had never experienced before. In the midst of all the changes that Christ was working in Jill's life, she was about to reconnect with a man named Dave who would eventually become her husband today. So I was actually out I was at mom's I was out exercising walking on the road or something and and he drove by in his pickup. We actually already knew each other because during those years of my single, wild, crazy days after that marriage, um, we had gone out on a date together once or twice, a couple mm-hmm. times. And um, he was a um, old rodeo cowboy, and he called me a hippie chick. The hippie chick. <laughs> and... Um, and I was pretty wild and crazy, and he, Dave was very quiet, you know, and not that he wasn't wild and crazy too, but but I was very animated and silly, and and he was he, he was he was shy, and so we didn't have much in common really. So we went out a couple of times and then didn't go out anymore, and um, but then he saw me that day walking, and he turned around and came back and. And I invited him into my mom's house, and I began to tell him what had happened in my life, that I'd been saved. And um, and so we started seeing each other. And, and, and was Dave a Christian at this point? Dave, Dave had gotten saved when he was young, but he had wandered away for many years. And he was just at that point in his life where he was searching and finding his way back to God. He was excited to hear that I was a Christian, and I obviously acted and looked different than I had, you know, before, and um, and so it was something he was interested in, you know, because that's what he wanted too, and so he started coming to Austin to visit me, and um, and or I'd come down here and we would go to church together and stuff, 
and um, I was I was really emotional. In fact, when Dave said that he wanted to get married, I was totally scared to death of that because um, I didn't think I had what it took to be a good wife, and um, I'd already had a failed marriage and didn't feel like I knew how to pick men, you know, and even though I had prayed about whether I should pursue this relationship with Dave, and I did at some point feel like God said, this is the man for you. Mm. This is who I choose for you. Mm. And, um, but I, but I was very afraid of, of marriage because I didn't feel like I was very good marriage material. I don't know how long we dated, about three months, and then decided to get married, and he was really sweet and asked my mom, you know, uh, for her blessing. And um, so then we got, we had a small little really sweet church wedding. First couple of years of our marriage were pretty volatile, too, because we fought a lot, (laughs) had to work a lot of things out. Um, But one thing Dave said to me at the beginning of our marriage was, let's promise each other that we'll never use the D word, no matter what happens, talking about divorce. And we've kept that promise to each other. We have definitely wanted to kill each other a couple of times, but we never use the D word. Yeah. (laughs) As we talked, Jill shared that even though Christ had saved her and forgiven her and had led her to her husband, Dave, the effects of the abortion and her former lifestyle were still evident and long-lasting in their marriage. The world tells young women to seek popularity, beauty, pleasure, or whatever will make them happy. Yet the more they chase after those worldly dreams, the emptier they become. That's why I'm excited to tell you about a special conference designed for mothers and daughters to encourage them that there is just one thing worth seeking after, Jesus Christ. The conference is called Seeking Christ and takes place at the Ark Encounter in Kentucky, September 20 and 21st. The conference is taught by Sarah Malley Hancock, the founder of Bright Lights Ministry and includes skits, real-life examples, studies for moms and daughters to do together, and bonus sessions by Ken Ham and Martin Isles from Answers in Genesis. Plus, you'll get to walk through the full-scale replica of Noah's Ark there at the Ark Encounter, which I've actually done and is incredible. Young women will be challenged to seek the Lord first in their lives, deepen their love for God's Word, be rooted in their identity in Christ, gain vision for close family relationships, and shine their light brightly for the Lord. The primary focus is for young women ages 10 to 18 and their mothers, but of course, women of all ages are welcome to come. Learn more at brightlightsministry.com. Again, that's brightlightsministry.com. Summer is here, and so is the chance to take a breather from school. And there's a decent chance that the subject your student is most excited to take a break from is math. But it doesn't have to be that way, especially if you're using CTC Math. Their focus is helping your student learn at the pace that's best for them. Every lesson is fully online with interactive questions and clear explanations. And their video tutorials take difficult concepts and break them down into digestible ideas. But here's the crazy part. They have a 12-month money-back guarantee. That's right, you can use CTC Math for an entire year. And if you don't like it, or it didn't work out for you, or if you're just unethical, which as a compelled listener, I hope you're not, then you just shoot them an email and tell them that you'd like your money back, and they'll gladly refund your entire purchase, no questions asked. There is literally no risk for an entire year. You can't beat that. Because their heart is to serve your family. That's why they sponsor Compelled, so that we can continue creating stories that will bless and encourage your family. And they want to do the same for your students' math needs. So whether summer is a time for your student to catch up, keep up, or move ahead, CTC Math is there. Learn more at ctcmath.com. Again, that's ctcmath.com. God created women to be nurturers, not to be murderers of their own offspring. Yeah. And when you do something that's so against what God created you to be and to do, it cannot help but change you and, and harm you psychologically, spiritually, and emotionally. Those first 10 years of our married life, I would wake up in the middle of the night, you know, 
weeping hmm. uh, over regrets over that baby that was that was lost and yeah and that I had no um no tenderness towards and when I went into the marriage with Dave uh, there was so much baggage and so much shame for what I had done before marriage um I even struggled with believing that I was truly saved even though I'd had this precious and beautiful conversion uh, experience I I doubted my salvation all the time <laughs> and I remember going to my pastor one time and just saying I don't know if I'm saved or not how do I know if I'm saved you know and just and repeating the the uh um, the prayer constantly, you know, at the end of the church service, you know, when he would, if any, you know, when he would um, pray a prayer, you know, of, of uh, salvation, well, I was like, okay, I better do it again to make sure I've got this. <laughs> we had a lot of um, issues sexually after we married. Um, I, I couldn't in, enjoy the sexual relationship in marriage without emotion, a lot of emotion. I would weep. Um, and I think it's because I abused it so much that I couldn't see it as anything but dirty. And um, Dave was the most um, long-suffering, patient man because he dealt with that probably for 10 years into our marriage with me crying and being emotional. And um, so it, it was just time. God just, you know, the, the more you learn about God and, and, and yourself as a child of God and, and who you are in Christ, you know, then he, he begins to heal all that stuff. I strongly felt that God wasn't going to give me children because I didn't deserve children because I had destroyed my first child. Mm. So, um, but then eventually we did get pregnant and, um, it was a very emotional pregnancy because I just knew he wasn't going to give me a healthy child because I didn't deserve a healthy child. <laughs> and early in the pregnancy, um, when they did a amniocentesis, like they used to do frequently with women to look for anything, uh, they said that something had come back abnormal and that um, our child might have Down syndrome. And I was like, of course, of course, because I don't deserve a healthy child. And we did have a very healthy little girl. And then three years later, uh, got pregnant and had another healthy little girl. Um, and then we just never had any more children. Never used birth control and never had any more children. Jill, like many other women, has discovered that the consequences of abortion reach farther than she would ever have imagined. Abortion has a ripple effect all through our society. And every woman, and they say that almost every uh, one in every three women have probably experienced a abortion or multiple abortions. And that, that ripple effect, it affects everybody. First of all, most women, I think, that have abortions kind of go off this deep end of, um, of self-loathing and because many of them are very promiscuous, more so afterwards than they were before. Um, even though they're car they carry shame for what they did, they end up doing it over and over again. It affects your, your husband. It affects the other children that come along later. It affects the your parents because you've destroyed their their grandson or granddaughter. As time has gone on, Jill has found healing from her abortion first and foremost through Christ. Without him, there is no purpose for healing in the first place. And Jill recognizes that Christ is the ultimate source of true hope and forgiveness. Jill has also found healing by sharing about her abortion experience when appropriate, and just recently by talking about it with her mom. I, you know, one of the hardest things is, I think, thinking about the pain that it caused my mom. And of course, I'm oblivious to that. 
you know, in your selfish, you know, sinful way when you're young. And yeah. And so it wasn't until years later that I realized how, how horrible that must have all been for her. And then the fact that, that, um, that neither one of us spoke about it for so many years. It was just that dirty secret that we kept from everybody, you know. When, when we were alone together one day, I just felt compelled to um, tell her how sorry I was for dragging her into such an ugly affair, something that she had carried such shame for for so many years. Um, and so I did ask her forgiveness and and when I did it was like it opened the door for my mom to be able to talk about it and to be able to ask my forgiveness Hmm. and um, even though we've always been close a new closeness um, tenderness between us um, was there instantly for a wound to heal, it needs to be open to the sunlight and the, and um, instead of hiding it in the dark, and and I think that that just healed some wounded areas in my mom and myself for us to to open up with each other and just be able to talk about this ugly thing in the past and ask each other's forgiveness for you know me for insisting you know and talking her into signing the papers so that I could do this thing and her probably feeling like I was the adult in the room why didn't I say no we can't do this this is a baby you know but she was it was the fear of man really on both of us yeah that we were so afraid of what other people would think yeah that we gave no thought to the the third life that was involved yeah. It's only been in the last five or eight years that I actually begin to tell people in my family. Now, other people knew, Christian friends, you know, but family is hard. And it was still such a stigma yeah. for, for my family to know that I had done this way back when we were kids. Over the last few years, Jill has become involved with a movement called the Abolition of Human Abortion. Two of the main distinctions that make abolition different from the regular pro-life movement is that the abolition movement is targeted at the complete abolition of the abortion industry, not just regulating different parts and pieces of it at a time, but it's more similar to the movements that abolished slavery in the United States and in England in the 1800s. The other distinguishing characteristic of the abolition movement is its emphasis on the supremacy of Jesus Christ and the need to save people's hearts, not just unborn life. The greatest miracle is not saving a life from physical death, but from spiritual and eternal death. I think the the logic of abolition gave me passion. We just got a lot more excited about being involved in the pro-life movement in an abolitionist style. Yeah. And it was at that point where I just felt compelled to use my story as a platform to further this movement and just, just got more passionate. I honestly have felt like through being vocal about it, that has been healing. Mm-hmm. I, I went to a listening session at the Capitol uh, this past session uh, where about um, 40 women shared their stories of abortion. And one of the women that got up and shared her story said, you know, if, if abortion had been illegal, I would have never considered it because I wasn't going to break the law. And we tend to feel that way because, I mean, we'll break God's law, but we won't break the civil law because we don't want to get thrown in prison. Um, Yeah. And so then the person who had put this listening session together got up at the end and said, I would just like to pose the question, how many of you in this room would have gotten an illegal abortion if you had not 
if it had been illegal at the time instead of legal. And every woman in the room said, no way, I wouldn't have broken the law. Did a single one say that they would have still gotten the back Not a single one. Not a single one. So it just goes to show that good laws restrain evil behavior. Think of all the millions of women who would not have gotten an abortion if it had been illegal. Yeah. We would have had to figure something else out. Yeah. Like maybe adopting those babies out to families that desperately wanted children or figured out how to be a single parent and raise it with our the help of our parents or something, you know. Yeah. Um, good, good laws restrain evil behavior. As I have gotten more involved and actually gone to some of these abortion clinics to try to reach out to people who are going in to abort their children, um, that those that I've gone with to learn from and follow their example, they that is how they reach out to these women. They reach out to them um, and, and men um, by sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ and that, that these children are made in the image of God, that we're all made in the image of God, and, and that, that God's moral law says, thou shalt not murder. And, um, and just really sharing the gospel with these people, they believe very strongly that you need to bring the gospel of Jesus Christ into the situation because it's the word of God that changes people. That's been really um, beautiful to watch and to learn how to try to do. As we wrapped up our conversation, I asked Jill one last question. What would the Jill Robbins today say to the 17-year-old Jill Robbins that had just had her abortion? Wow. (laughs) I think I needed to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. I needed to know what I had done was the worst possible thing anybody could do to take the life of another person. And um, and there was no weaseling out of it. I was the chief of sinners, as Paul called himself. But, but that God forgives even the chief of sinners. And... Um, that healing can't come with with uh, something that you hide in the darkness. Um, realize what a great God we serve that that he would that he would forgive even even such a heinous act as that. Mm. Um, and it it just brings healing. It just brings healing. It brings more love for for Christ and what He did for us. Um, humility. Um, because it, he did something for us we couldn't do for ourselves. Um, abortion brings incredible shame, and healing can't come if you if you hide the shame, and and that we need to uh, let the light of God shine on it. Jill, it has been a pleasure hearing your story. I really appreciate you just taking the time to do this. Thank you, Paul. Thank you for the invitation. As I listened to Jill share her convictions about abolition, I was reminded of when Joseph tells his brothers in Genesis 50 that what they had intended for evil, God used for good. Jill had originally sought out an abortion to hide her sin, and it's terrible that the abortion happened. But God has since then forgiven her and redeemed her, and Jill now uses that terrible experience to fight for the lives of other preborn children. I hope that all of us remember that there is no sin so great that it will separate us from the love of God, and that God can use anyone with any experience for His kingdom. If you'd like to learn more or get in contact with Jill, shoot me a message through our contact page at compelledpodcast.com, and I'll put you in touch. Also, if you'd like to learn more about abolition, visit abolishhumanabortion.com, or if you live in Texas like Jill, visit abolishabortiontx.org. You can also visit our website, compelledpodcast.com, and look up this episode for more information. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram at Compelled Podcast and on Twitter at Compelled Show. 
Also, please leave us a five-star review wherever you listen to podcasts. It's one of the best ways to help other people find our show. If you'd like to support the work that we're doing with our podcast, then here are a couple of ways you can help out. The first way you can support Compelled is by sharing this episode with your friends. If you know someone who would be encouraged by Jill's story, then send this episode to them and consider sharing it on social media. It really makes a difference and it helps spread the word about the show. The second way is to join Compelled as a monthly member starting at $10 a month. As a monthly member of Compelled, you'll receive access to different perks, including behind-the-scenes recordings from our interviews, which is definitely the most popular perk for our members. When I actually sit down and interview guests, the actual recording is normally around two hours, and there are all kinds of stories and insights that we end up cutting out of the final episode because of time constraints. But if you really enjoyed listening to a guest like Jill today, then you can dive deeper and listen to all of our behind-the-scenes content when you become a monthly member. But of course, the biggest benefit of being a monthly member is that you're allowing Compelled to continue sharing these important stories. You can become a monthly member today by visiting compelledpodcast.com and clicking the link at the top that says become a member. This episode was edited by Zach Fowler. Find him online at zachfowlerimagery.com. Our logo was designed by Josiah Jost. View his work at siadesign.com. Our website was created by Ben Billups. Follow Ben on Instagram at ben.billups. Our media assistant is Frank Allegrea. Find him on Twitter at TheFrankAllegrea. Our music outro is by Ben Jackson and Brian Facchino, and our assistant producer is none other than my wonderful wife, Sarah Hastings. I'm your host, Paul Hastings, and we'll be back with another compelling story next Tuesday. This episode is brought to you by The Truce Podcast. I'm sure you've been there. You're at an event, a dinner, a small group, and someone says something like, If you're a Christian, you have to vote Republican. Huh. That raises an interesting question. How did evangelicals like me get to the place where we just assumed we'd all vote one way? This season on The Truce Podcast, we're diving deep into the complexity of the 1970s and 80s to understand how evangelicals tied themselves to the Republican Party. It's a story that involves murder, corruption, redemption, and our need to be heard. I'll be talking with celebrated historians like Rick Perlstein, Pulitzer Prize winners Francis Fitzgerald and Jesse Isinger, and some of the best guests I've ever had. Truce is the show that uses journalistic tools to look inside the Christian church. We press pause on the culture wars in order to explore how we got here and how we can do better. Subscribe to Truce anywhere you get podcasts or listen at trucepodcast.com.